Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Don't believe or shout, Daniel. Don't believe or shout, Daniel. Don't tell you shout, Daniel. Don't tell you shout, Daniel. Show the other way, Daniel. Show the other way, Daniel. Hello, all, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I'm joined today by a very special guest, Ignacio Zuleta, a lawyer, yogi, writer, teacher, and dear friend of mine, with whom I've maintained, despite our distance, a most friendly and fruitful correspondence. Ignacio comes to us from Colombia, a beautiful nation uh, about whose politics, history, and culture will soon be treated to a brief lesson. Ignacio, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. I feel like I'm at home, even if we haven't seen the, our faces yet um, for your public. I'm telling you that you, you helped me a lot in my project when I had to do editing in English because my English is very rusty, so I tried to do my best. Yes, and I hope my suggestions were of some benefit, and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, to, to hearing of your, of your future success in those endeavors. So, so I know our time is brief. Uh, I want you to tell us, if you would, a little bit about your history. You trained as a lawyer, uh, but now, as I understand it, earn your bread as a teacher and a writer. How is it you came to slough off your litigious skin and put on the coat of a, of a writer, of a, of a literary enthusiast? Mm, I think it's, I think words are the bottom of all this. Because um, when, I, when I studied, uh, when I did my law degree, I actually wanted to train my mind more than go on to, into the real, profession of being a lawyer. I think justice, justice, a sense of justice was uh, at the bottom of it also, but words and uh, a sort of, I needed a sort of career to organize my mind. It was at the time I was 18 when I began or something like that, maybe earlier. And um, my family discouraged me to, to, to do literary studies at the beginning. They said you would starve and all the same old story. So I decided to actually finish, even if I, I was not fully convinced. But I knew that it was that was not going to be my my main job in life. And then life came and proved me right late, but it proved me right. Um, when I discovered that there was a lot of corruption also in that system, the system of judges and the secretaries of the judge and things like that, and then you had to, what we call, oil their hands for things to happen, that that I that was the last thing. Before, actually, I graduated, but I managed to graduate out of discipline for one side, and the other one, I, I liked I liked the history of ideas and political ideas. I'm I'm from a family of politicians, and uh, politics for me are ingrained. Even if I'm not a politician myself, and I wouldn't like to be one, my sense of uh, the world as a political 
scenario is uh, very strong. So I can't, I can't help it. So I, I actually enjoyed the, the theories and the ideas and the history of ideas and the training of the mind and um, the order that that gave me that I didn't have before. So actually, that's mainly what happened. Then I decided to do other things and then began freelancing very soon, uh, writing little articles for the newspapers. They were kind enough to, to publish a couple of things, but they, that, that didn't give me a lot of money. So I have been always on the poor side of things, which doesn't mean I'm, I'm, I'm not, don't have plenty. I do, I feel like I, I'm very rich with whatever, whatever I have. But that is a different story because it belongs to the second stage of my history, as I said. Because uh, at a certain point, when I was maybe 30, I decided to go to India. It was in a turmoil side, and there was a turmoil outside also. It, it was a very difficult um, period for the country, and I suffered with lots of violence and small, big wars, etc. So I decided to to go for India and I left I left for India and I lived there for 12 years so I so I want to uh, I want to accompany you on that hemispheric shift from the west to the east tell me and I find this fascinating that you decided to make this move um, why did you decide to do so why did you decide to leave behind as you said the law your home and really everything uh, with which you'd grown to become familiar and totally uproot yourself. What was, the what was the inspiration that led you so far afield? You see, you can imagine I have thought about that a lot 30 years down the line right now. And um, since I'm writing a sort of uh, novel, autobiographical novel, I, I have have seen that it is quite important for me, myself, to understand why did I do that. What I can remember, and I'm precisely last night, I thought there, there, was, there were three reasons. The first one, I came out of the closet since I remember I'm gay, and I'm fine with that, never had big troubles with that. But then um, I had a, a late um, adolescence, like to say. I, I was responsible for some things at home, so I could live my own life, and then it came a little bit late. And when I was in my early 20s, I began to live my life fully. And I, I became independent, I looked for a place, etc. And then I saw that my my how do you say that my road was really conducing me to something that was not very nice because i was at that time lots of alcohol and promiscuity and it was the 80s and the aids was also there and then I, at a certain point i i thought I have to stop. I, this is not the way I want to live. I, I lost my light, my inner light, which I had very clear for most of the time in my life. I said, no, that, that I don't like. I have to do something about that. 
and then I had a few options and then I met some shamans in the Amazon and they began the process of giving me some clarity with ayahuasca. It was a medical approach to the thing, not, not at all entertainment or psychedelic trips. It was a, I, I was, I was sick actually. My soul was sick and I didn't see it clearly and my body was failing also with the abuses of alcohol and a couple of drugs, not hard drugs, but marijuana. And um, my mind was very dispersed. Sorry about this. Um, so it was not a decision. It was an opening to something new that could lead me again to a more um, transparent path. Tell, tell me if you recall, um, what impact did the ayahuasca have on you that perhaps a different drug like marijuana did not? You see, um, since I did it in the uh, frame of a medicine and not as an entertainment or uh, fun for fun or whatever, I did it for my health, integral health, wholesome health my mind, my emotions, my body. Um, and I was very well led by my own doctor, which helped me with that, my personal doctor, which helped me with that. The experience was, a, was as I supposed it should be, always be, which is the medicine gives you a clarity, it gives you a verge at all levels, and then you begin to build on that, and then you begin to see that you made a, you had your shortcomings, you made mistakes, you want to mend them, uh, there is way to mend them, there's ways to mend them. So I began a process of, it's like a resetting actually. And it, it, you don't have to, to have strong psychedelic experiences to, to to be able to do that. The shaman plays a very important role on that because even without the, the vine, the medicine, the ayahuasca itself, they are so wise. They are so wise and they, they are so intuitive. And at the same time, they know so many things, little plants here, little tricks there that can lead you even, even without the vine. But with the vine and combined with the wisdom of the shaman and that's a parenthesis i wouldn't advise anyone to do the experience without a really recognized traditional shaman uh, in their context by the way so what 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 i saw is that i could change my approach to life and recover my soul and that's what exactly exactly what it happened you see the the role from Siberia and Amazon and wherever you have shamans, the role is that they recover your soul. But for that, you have to believe in your soul. Of course. Sure. Yeah, that that would be a precondition of this whole process. <laughs> that is the premise. That is a, something that you have to believe in. That you you yes. you have different components in you, and the ayahuasca can show you clearly that you. You are not just your physical body and your surroundings and your even your time, but th there is a, a different dimension in which you could expand eventually and do build. You, do you
do you think that traditional religious practices can also get you to that point of profundity of um, otherworldliness, or do you think that it's necessary to have the assistance, so to speak, of, of a, a herb or a, or, a, or a certain drug by which you might yeah. be elevated to, a, to another I, I, level? I can, I can follow you. You see, our current religious practices are um, slightly out of touch of the full needs of the human being. The theory is fantastic. The possibility of having a, a mystic uh, connection or an ecstasy during prayer or meditation is, is there and it happens and it happened to me also later on. In a way, not nothing great, I'm not a saint or not a, um, enlightened or whatever, but yes, they can, but they have they have lost a little bit of touch and a little bit of flesh. So for, for example, in a Catholic environment like mine, in a Catholic, uh, Catholic uh, sort of say education or training, yes, you eventually could, they, these things could lead you to understanding your uh, connection with the whole, the whole, with a capital W. Um, what drugs do, and especially, I, I prefer to call them medicines, because usually I try not to go to synthetic things, but anyway, that's another business. Um, what I see is that medicine is like ayahuasca or psilocybin, they are able to open under guidance, preferably, and expand the things that have been shrinked by civilization. Mm. And they can, they can. So they really, you can actually, that, that happened in the 60s, you saw that, and it's happening again. People is resorting to medicines, natural medicines like those, ayahuasca or um, mescaline or psilocybin, not because they are addicts to drugs and they want to because they really open up certain things that are clogged by civilization. But it's not the only way to reach there. It's not the only way. Yoga is another one. And that's what I wanted. Because you see, I once I, I saw that ayahuasca could lead me also in that path, first, ayahuasca is, um, it needs, as I understand it, context and a shaman etc and yoga is something that you do for yourself so at the same time with ayahuasca the possibility of doing yoga appeared and it was so helpful and so quick and so soothing that i i decided to take that path instead of the other so so the ayahuasca seems to me to have been a useful entree Absolutely opening. That, that was that was the, the how do you call that key to opening the possibility of the other possibility, and then I, I was able to choose. I was able to choose. Um, yoga I felt was less alien to me than ayahuasca itself. Even if I'm Colombian and I can reach the Amazon in one hour flight. And things at the end. They are Colombians also, and it, it's my tropics, and it, it's 
slightly alien because it's not part of the civilization in which I live my daily life. Yoga was incorporated slowly. And once I tried yoga, very nice, simple, but efficient practices under the guidance of the teacher also, I saw that they, they were slower, but they were safer. Why? Because I was still afraid that I could end, as I ended up with alcohol, in, mm -hmm. a, in a dead end. And I didn't want that bad. Yeah, I can imagine you being apprehensive and a bit fearful of the possibility of r relapsing, for lack of a better word. I don't know in what state you found yourself in the you 80s, know, but with the use of ayahuasca. Well, it, it's, not, it's not that you have the possibility of relapsing because uh, ayahuasca is not addictive. But I, I, I sort of feared in my own self that maybe, maybe, let's put it in positive. I, I thought it was a safer way for me to build a new approach to life through yoga. And actually, when I decided to go to India, I, my decision was only for six months. Mm. But I met a master and I, when I met the master, the guru, I saw very clearly that I, it was going to take longer than six months myself now um, if i may interrupt in the modern yeah. day we have at least here in america we have yoga studios on every single block you know it's a ubiquitous presence in and yeah. in, in daily life at that time was yoga i don't know if it was popular in america but was it popular in colombia did you have access to yoga at that point or did you just simply decide to immerse yourself in in the very country in which it was uh, originated what you was see, the uh, yeah at the 90s which is when this happened uh the commercial yoga was not so available here mm. it was beginning to happen in california and things like that and from the 60s you had sort of spiritual things which were not this, the spirituality of the West, but the East coming and going, and everyone that was slightly interested could could, um, could find could find something. But the same that I say with ayahuasca, I say with yoga. For me, it was very important to have a real tradition, something deep with roots, not commercial ayahuasca or commercial yoga i was not at all interested in that i was lucky because nowadays it's not very easy neither to find a shaman a real one with because they are disappearing as the forest is disappearing and uh, no nor a real guru because it, can, it has become a sort of um economic pursuit of many in india itself so it's a tricky one and i was very lucky I was very lucky. I was really praying with all my heart that that happened and happened out of luck. And also maybe because I I didn't want to experiment just touching here and touching there. I, I just wanted to, to reset myself fully and seriously and joyously at the same time. No, not seriously doesn't mean solemnity or anything like that. 
So I was lucky with that one, that, that I can tell you. So you wanted the full immersion in this yes, experience? Yes, of course. Now, for how long did you ultimately remain in India? Well, I was telling you that I, I was going to be there for six, seven months. And then I, when, I, when I met the master, I said, this serious thing, this I cannot, this is an opportunity I cannot. And then I decided to stay and I didn't know how, for how long. And I actually came here after the first year and sold my things and uh, gave my books away and uh, burned my bridges and uh, everything, my ships and my bridges. And I decided that I, I would definitely leave, etc., etc. But there was a time for that also. It was interesting because I wanted to I didn't want, I was not reacting against my old self. I just wanted to build a new self somehow. Not possible, I can tell you after so many years. But then you can really uh, begin anew if you are allowed to, if you don't have children, if you don't have commitments, if you don't have special duties, your parents or whatever. And that was my case because my mother died. She was a my uh, closest um, uh, attachment and she died while I was there on the first year so I was free to come and see what was going to happen and go back and I didn't have any responsibilities to fulfill directly so to say so in that I was lucky also and I stayed for 11 more years without coming out of the monastery the ashram and and what compelled you to return? Why did you not persist there? It, it's not a matter of persistence. You see, then later on, I discovered that there is a time for everything. And that the period, the usual period that you spend with a guru without um, losing your possibility of come back to the world and be functional is 12 years. And the, it was exactly 12 years, I can tell you, with almost with days that a couple of things happened. I broke a hand, my brother was dying. Um, there, was, there was a change in the ashram, et cetera. And a, a, a constellation of things happened that um, compelled me to come back and see what, what, what happened in those 12 years of apparent seclusion because I was not at all aloof. I, I worked very hard. I didn't meditate the whole day. I worked like a madman from morning to evening because you had to run a place and then it was work, 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 work. And the, the world came into the ashram even if I didn't go out. So I came to know the MP3s on the first cell phones and um, um, internet, for example, was grow when I went in the 90s was beginning so no I didn't have an internet myself I didn't have a gmail or whatever and when I came out the world was completely upside down in that sense because everyone was glued to their mobile phones and everyone was having a gmail or hotmail or yahoo thing so you can imagine but I didn't I I didn't suffer the, the transition without knowing that it was it was happening. I suffered the transition in the sense that I, I was not able to 
to use them. But I knew that they existed and it was a very big cultural shock when I came out again. So that fact is, that, that's remarkable to me. The fact that you entered into this, this world untouched or uncorrupted by all of our devices and all of our uh, electronic attachments and emerged back into it, returned into it when all of these things had descended upon us <laughs> and infiltrated our, our everyday life. Uh, yeah. You think given our, given our attachment to these things to, today, like I'm about, I'm 30 years of age, so about the age at which you went to India. And I'm just thinking, would I be able to leave behind all of these attachments, all of these material attachments, all of these electronic goods of which we avail ourselves every day as we are right now with this conversation, would I be able to leave those things behind, completely uh, immerse myself in this sort of spiritual and, and ab in some ways abstruse experience and be sound of mind at the end of it. What do you think about that? What if you think if you were my age today, if you were 30, three decades younger, how would you detach yourself from these technological gadgets and adopt a, a spiritual practice? Maybe it doesn't mean you go to India, but how does one uh, inhabit a more spiritual place? in this yeah. world of technology? I think one of the worst things that has happened to us and to your um, generation is that we have lost touch with nature. You see, na in nature we can find everything. Actually, when you're in love, you don't need the the WhatsApp to communicate with others. There are subtle ways to communicate also when you are linked to someone. You can think at the same time sometimes, surprisingly, you can feel that she or he is, is in distress and you don't actually have, you haven't seen a help in the WhatsApp, but you, you, you feel when you sever that uh, cord that we, with nature, then you're lost. And that's why I, even if it is not fully possible today, I can't myself imagine that I, I would detach myself from all these gadgets for a, for a very, very long time. It's good to give yourself enough time to experience that you can actually live and live better sometimes without all these things around. The very basic. If you live in an apartment like I do, and I open my Wi-Fi because I lost my connection, you will see maybe 20, 20 possibilities of nets, and they are all radiation. They are all radiating, otherwise they wouldn't reach your phone when you're home. If you can give yourself the space of mm, Go to places in which the, that kind of radiation or whatever you call it is not there, electrical impulses which affect our cells and affect our atoms because we're made of energy. You will see that the withdrawal can recede easily, but you have to connect with nature. That's the only way. That's the only way. There are two ways to connect with the cosmos. Love, one, 
and nature. There's no other way. You cannot connect through this. You can connect to NASA and to the artificial satellites. But you cannot connect to the cosmos, the real one, the whole, the, the mysterious. One of the beauties of uh, spiritual life, if you can call it, is that you have to face there are things that are mysterious. And science will never be able to decipher them because it's not a matter of the brain. It's a matter of the, of the being itself. So yes, I, I think it will be very difficult for you, but also I, I'm sure that you can give yourself a couple of detox time and see what happens. The first days will be horrifying. Since if you lose yourself, then you're lost, but you're not actually. Yeah, <laughs> I, I will confess that I'm somewhat peculiar in that way. I, I'm actually quite content uh, dispossessing myself of my phone and in going out into nature. And I think that's uh, something uh, that a lot more people are realizing, especially in the West. I think a right. lot more people are recognizing the salutary, profoundly salutary and healthful impacts of re uh, regaining connection with nature, going yeah. out for instance, and this is something that I preach that is very simple and it's, a, it's something at which a lot of people laugh, but simply taking off one's shoes, going outside yes. and standing on the earth, grounding and feeling the impact that, that, that's, that communicates itself from the soles of your feet to your knees, to your visceral organs, all the way up to your heart. I mean, it's so simple and it only requires of you bare feet and a few minutes time Absolutely. And it's profoundly effective you can do it in a city you can find a little park you just need a little square uh, of, of space to be able to do this and I think people are beginning increasingly to understand the importance of such small acts of 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 natural um, um, reacquaintance let's say <laughs> Because yeah. this is the state into which we were yeah. born, yeah. to be in yeah. uh, in, connect, in yeah. union with nature. I couldn't agree more. I do that every single day. I have to. But, I have so to. That's, that's one thing that I do want to ask you, just because of your vast experience. What are some of your daily activities, be they yogic <laughs> or, or just simply um, therapeutic, in regard to connecting with nature? What do you do? Well, the first thing I try to do is not to live in a in a dense environment, arid. I I have to have. Well, you see, I'm spoiled. I'm spoiled because I live in the middle of the tropics, which are so exuberant, so rich, so full of things. We have. This is the country of after Brazil, the second country in the world with more biodiversity. So, um. I have, I, I, that's why I'm, I'm living here and not in China or somewhere else. But uh, what I do is I try to do exactly as you do. For example, yes, or today I didn't do that. But yesterday, first thing in the morning, even before doing my, my stretching and my little breathing, and which I do every day, but I'm a very disciplined by force because I decided to be disciplined and now my discipline is part of me. So it's easy. I went for, for a walk in the park. I have a park nearby, very nice, it has a river, and then I'll take my shoes, 
the beginning I walk a little bit and then I do a nice walk. I try to listen, try to breathe, and that's that's very simple thing. And that changes the whole day, actually. Changes the whole day. But if you cannot do that, then at least as you say, go to the small piece of earth, actual earth. Try to reconnect. The other thing that is a very nice thing is water. If you don't have park nearby, but you have a river or a lake or the sea, that water is also a very powerful part of nature. But you cannot live without that. You cannot, you cannot. And you were probably the last child of the woods. <laughs> because, I mean, your parents, they run shoeless. Have you say that? No, no. Mm -hmm. Shoeless. And they climb the trees, and they, they still have this idea that nature is closer than we feel it today. I think that's that's a must, and we have to return to that. Otherwise, we are in the hands of Elon Musk. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> for better or worse. Now, tell or me, <laughs> do you do you think that um, Colombians maybe more generally have a better appreciation? of and attachment to nature than say your average american i think so i think so but it, it's getting lost because you see usually usually no the population in colombia used to be less than 50 years ago the proportion was 65 rural and uh, the rest was urban now it's only 18 to 20 percent rural so it means that uh, the new generations are, are, have grown in a tiny apartment with no trees, with no garden, with no connections to the sea, or with no connections to the plains or to the mountains because they can't afford it or they have to live there. So it's locked. And they, of course, they live inside their Facebook. They, they don't have an outside life. So the same alienation is happening all, all around the world. But we, we do tend to appreciate nature more than the average American because of that. Because you have been, you have been bombarded more by TV and ads and things like that, that that we did a couple of years ago. Now it's all the same thing, more or less the same thing. I don't know, it's, uh, it's tricky to say, but ah, the other thing that happened is that middle classes, and I can speak about only middle class, um, middle, middle classes, they used to have a piece of earth somewhere, piece of land. <laughs> they had a little farm, which was just for that, for going on the weekends and not too far, and it belonged to the father or the mother or whatever. So they used to have two houses, not necessarily luxurious or whatever, but they used to have a root somewhere. Um, that is that is getting lost. That is getting lost. Yeah. The people is returning also. I I think that the pandemic and the governments, at least the the United States government's response to the pandemic, was something of a stimulus for a lot of people to encourage them to 
<laughs> perhaps remove themselves from the more hyper-urbanized environments in which they were living and seek um, nature, for lack of a better word, uh, to seek that out a little bit more seriously and enthusiastically. So I sense um, among many younger Americans something of a determination to divest themselves of what they had previously known and to seek sort of the unknown. There, there's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's the majority sentiment among those in my age group, but there certainly is a strong, a strong feeling that what the way in which we were living isn't the right and natural way. So you do see a lot of people returning to um, like drinking raw milk, for instance. Some things can be a little bit um, perhaps um, unusual. There are nice symbols, you see. You have to begin somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what's happening. People are, uh, I think, rereading works of Stoicism, works by Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus there, hopefully reading Henry David Thoreau, one of my literary heroes, to whom I often return and perhaps into whom I am turning as <laughs> as I walk around uh, endlessly in this, this big, vast, beautiful world. But I'm hopeful because I do see signs of, of change in, in America's younger generation. Yes, I can sense them also. And uh, you see, for the first time in my whole life, and I'm 67, um, we have now a president, whether you accept his idea, ideologies or not, a president that the first thing that is talking about is climate change and the need to preserve the environment. Clearly, honestly, not cheating whether he can or he cannot. So things are changing, things are changing. Things should change, otherwise we will be, we will disappear, that's it. It's simple, simple as that. We can't continue the trend in which we are. And there is a lot of complications because it's a political system, it's an economic system, it's a cultural system, it's lots of things. But if you, as young people to which, worlds actually belong don't change then there is no hope but if you do and you open your eyes and you see and you you stop behaving like the zombies that the system need you to be then uh, there's hope fine yeah uh i that's a great message uh <laughs> that we should be shouting from the mountaintops that there is hope um, you mentioned the uh, recent election of of your current president, uh, Gustavo Petro, I believe. Yeah, is that's right. Yeah. Um, I think even the most astute observers of international politics probably only faintly recall that name and uh, the the message on which he ran. And I, I hate to go from the transcendental to the political, but maybe just for an American audience, you can explain a little bit more. Um, the political situation as it stands in Colombia right now, uh, maybe some of the other issues with which the government and the people are grappling. You mentioned climate change, um, but but maybe you could speak to that a little bit for a few minutes. I can I can make a little brief on that. Um, the first thing 
is that uh, the land here is so badly um, owned, so badly, no, how do you say that? Distributed so mm -hmm. badly that actually it's, it's the real 1%. Yeah. And then the rest, they, there has they, we, we haven't had an agrarian reform, we haven't had a, a couple of things. So this is beginning to happen also, and it's a nice thing. The other thing that we have to deal with is narco-traffic. Can you imagine? That's a huge problem, which is not only our, yours, it's everywhere. So tackling things from the point of view of changing at least the distribution of the wealth a little bit, little bit, that the richest are taxed and they pay more as progressively as possible. I mean, that's common sense, is common sense. And then the, the idea of putting in the, the whole agenda of protecting the Amazon as much as you can, as far as you can, as the, the lung of the planet. I think that's interesting. So the situation is, it has not changed physically yet because the president has been in office for less than three months. It's nothing. But there is a cultural revolution happening. Cultural revolution. The cultural revolution that you don't have to kill your neighbor to be able to win whatever. No kill, no kidnap, no uh, aggression are well seen now. They are not part of our of our needs at the moment, so forget about that one. And whoever doesn't behave properly in that sense feels like at odds. That has changed. The other thing that happens is that hope is recovered. And um, that is a, I mean, a very, very big change. I, I don't want to, I, I wouldn't like to go into the details of the politics happening, but uh, when you are told by your president that neoliberalism is dead and the war on drugs has failed, then you have some hope. Because it's true, it's true. It was, it was a silly war, the war on drugs. It only gave us dead people for the thousands. It doesn't work like that. So it may change things. And the other thing is that Either you change your fossil fuel dependence or there's no planet to talk about. So I think in that sense, it's interesting, you see. It's for the first time I can see that he's speaking the same things that I've been trying to understand for the last 40 years and worried about. So for me, for me, it's fine. Maybe the right thinking persons, they are, fine if they think like that, uh, fear that he's a communist and he will, I don't think so. I think he's just a sheer Democrat, that's all. So you think in some ways he's been maybe misrepresented as being farther or further to the left than he actually is? Of course, of course. And, and it is the duty of the press to misrepresent him. 
from either yourself. side. Yeah, from either side. Yeah. So it's it, it is their duty to <laughs> not not to help him much. But anyway, that let's let's not um, deal with politics anymore because it's a topic that I can go forever, and I um, it's a process also for me trying to understand what's best, what is not. And um, what I think is that everyone can actually think whatever it is, provided the planet is not at stake, mm. human life is not at stake, then if you have those two things, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I thank you for, for indulging the political conversation just for a few minutes, because I, I think that it's important for Americans, especially, to have some awareness of what's happening, not just across the world, yeah. but even, but even to ourselves, right? To uh, amongst the the South American nations, with whom we've always had such a fruitful history. Um, I there is something on which about which I've been thinking for the for the past few days, and that is and not something into which we need to delve too deeply, but it's the the political trends of. Uh, the the Western Hemisphere and the Eastern Hemisphere, uh, specifically Europe and the Americas, how there seems to be the ascendancy of more progressive ideas and leaders here in America. If you look at Canada with Justin Trudeau, you look at America, the United States of America with uh, President Biden, and you look at, um, depending on how progressive and left-wing you're going, you have in Cuba, Canel, and in Venezuela, Maduro, you have Petro in Colombia. And then there's more of a conservative, oh, I don't know, response in the European nations with Liz Truss in England and and Maloney in Italy just recently gaining um, ascendancy as the prime minister and, and in Hungary and Poland and Sweden as well. So again, not something that we have to touch in this conversation because our time is running short, but I've been thinking about that lately, that, that that shift or maybe a, a chasm that's developing ideologically, I, I think, between the two sides. And of course, things are always fluid in, in politics, so things could always change. Um, but do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, but today is not the time because, yes, I have, of course, but I won't touch that one. Because it's uh, first is it's, um, it's a thing that you have to say carefully. It can create uh, discomfort, and second, because things, as you say, are fluid and they're happening. So let's see what happens. Because uh, the geopolitics is something that is very interesting to look at these days, and in that I wouldn't like I wouldn't like to go. Fair, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, I yeah. just know that you are a keen political observer, so I wanted to to put forth the idea, and again, not necessarily as a topic about which we talk at any great length, but just to, to bring you into my mind and let you know what I've been thinking for the past few days. Just a just a phenomenon that I'm beginning to detect, and I don't know if it'll it, it, there's anything to it, um, but. Uh, but just a little a little idea that's that's flickering in my mind if anything significant will come of it i know not so we're we're just about 
toward the end of our conversation. You've been very gracious with your time, and I know you need to return to your teaching duties this afternoon. So I think we'll finish with just a few rapid fire questions that I'm coming up with. Go at the, go at the for very it. I'll tell you exactly how much time do we have. We have 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Let's okay, do short. Let's, you have them. Let's finish in maybe five minutes. That way, that way yeah, you have plenty of time to, to reconnect. And there would be a second chance after. Oh, I, I hope so. I hope so. So your country, Colombia, has become synonymous with Gabriel Garcia Marquez, right? the author mm -hmm. of whom uh, even everyone in the Anglophone world is so... Um, um, is so in in whom we reverence so much. So of course we're all familiar with his name. Could you perhaps provide us with a few Colombian authors with whom we should familiarize ourselves? Who are some of the other authors from your country, past or present, whom we should be reading? Um, it's a very subjective answer, but if I have to read to youngish and after Garcia Marquez people, I would read Tomás González. Tomás González. Most of his books are extraordinary. I, I love the way he writes. And um, Santiago Gamboa, he's, he's an urban iconoclast. He's very, he's very intelligent. He's very clever and He's a very good writer, and he's he's got a, got a lot of sense of humor. He's a little bit sarcastic, and he but he's from the literary point of view. I think his his uh, literature is extraordinary, and it, you should. And it's a he must be maybe fifty now, so he's not too old. He's not too young. He's lived the, the century, and he's. He would probably bloom later on. Tomás González and uh, Santiago Gamboa. There is one that is not my favorite writer, but I admire him very much, which is called um, Vasquez. Oh, his name escaped my mind, and I just read it. I'm getting old. Uh, Juan Gabriel Vasquez. Juan Gabriel is a very, he's a very good narrator. He's a little bit dense for my taste. I prefer lighter, but not less significant literature. He studies very well his topics. He writes very well. He's a good narrator, but his language is a little bit alien to, my, to me. Those three, I think, are, are a very good example of excellent writers anywhere in Spanish especially in Colombian Spanish, if you want to say that, that's this, but it's, uh, it's very appealing to us. It's our own language, and at the same time, it's not um, clumsy, colloquial, which is it's literature. I mean, it has a craft, it has a thought behind, it has a culture, it has readings, and it has, a yeah, the craft. Yeah, it certainly has. Just from my um, small experience with this, with Spanish speakers and especially Colombian Spanish speakers, there is a certain elegance uh, in that tongue that is somewhat lacking in 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 the other 
the other parts of the world. Uh, so that's excellent. And I'll certainly make reference to these authors' names uh, in the show yeah. notes below. That will be posted. Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you a hand with that through the whatever. Yes, of course. Thank you for that. And maybe we'll end with this question because you're someone who has well, tried so many things, uh, succeeded in, in many more, and uh, experienced a, a vast array of, of things throughout his life. What advice would you give to someone who's who feels perhaps unsettled where he is and wants to change his life in a radical way? What advice would you give to such a person? No, it's the same advice that the, that the Greeks gave in the how do you, how do you say that in English the Sibila the uh god it escaped know yourself have a look at who you are that's the only way that's the only way only to discover that you are not you if you are you alone you are with others but then change radically is not always necessary also you can change slowly and not too radically and still change and it, it's nice and with age you, you got to understand that that's a that's a very nice approach also i think the uh, i'll go back again nature nature will teach you what your real needs are because if you want to change it's because you are not content with what you have why are not you content maybe it's because of your liver maybe it's because you you don't have enough fulfillment as a human being on the planet earth reconnect with nature, don't have lots of expectations about what life is, because every day has wonderful things, horrible things sometimes, but they are intense and they make you live. And then there's some, some of these little experiences, it's life. Life is not the extreme last end from here. I don't know, nature nature i'll go back to nature as the clue to understand yourself and love your neighbor that's not mine <laughs> that's that's love your neighbor and then you will understand yourself i love your syncretic involvement of 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 uh, greek philosophy of christian morality and of eastern that's philosophy that's i think that's i think that's <laughs> very that one i can't help it yeah i think that's so uh, so beautifully stated and and uh, that's a sentiment with which i agree completely and yes of course i love the phrase the immortal phrase know thyself as it was inscribed on the uh, archway leading to the entrance of the the temple at delphi or delphi exactly. uh, so i think that's a beautiful message with which to end and uh, again, Ignacio, I thank you so much for being generous with your time. Thank you, thank you very much. I have an hour. By the way, I'm not successful. I don't feel myself succeeding in anything. I'm, I'm thriving. So, yeah, as we all are, as we all are. <laughs> that's why. That's why I'm telling you, as we all are. Yeah, and I'm sure that you are uh, your harshest critic. I can, I can tell you that from from having oh, corresponded. Anything, with you I love myself also sometimes. Yeah. Thanks yeah, very but, much. 
Daniel. Oh, you're so welcome. And the, the wisdom that you conveyed, of course, and the wisdom that you conveyed to us has been extraordinary. And I hope that people will, will implement it in their lives. So again, Ignacio, thank you so much. Um, All right. And I hope to speak with you again soon. Shout, 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 shout,